0: We are continuing our study through the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, looking and beholding the person of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 8, and we'll be in verses 23 to 27 this morning. We did finish our Old Testament class this morning. About 20 or so brave uh, students weathered the storm and uh, endured the class and just excited to... Having completed that, and that I'm hoping that these folks who went through the Old Testament class are able to go and share with all of you what they learned and explain to you uh, how the Lord works in the Old Testament. So, very, very, very exciting to have completed that. And I want to encourage you, just from my heart as your pastor, to sign up if you would for the evangelism class. we are set here in this world to make and multiply disciples of Jesus Christ. Our, our mission is not just ours, it's the biblical mission, the Great Commission. And to help you do that, we have this class, this evangelism class, that will equip you with the tools that you need to share the gospel. It'll also help you get rid of some of those fear barriers that you have set up in your life that prevent you from gospel conversations. So would you please sign up for the class? I encourage you to sign up and join. It starts December 4th, and it'll be good for your soul and your life. So uh, just a little plug for that class and having finished the Old Testament class. Okay, Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 to 27. Let me read them. And when he, that is Jesus, got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? Let me pray before we continue in our sermon. Bow with me. Heavenly Father, God, I ask that you would set before our eyes Jesus Christ. I pray that everyone in this room, would behold Him, that they would look upon Him with awe and wonder, seeing His power and His majesty over the storm, and that we would worship Him with our whole heart, surrendering our whole life to follow this King, the King who has power over the storm. In Jesus' name, Amen. I don't know if you're familiar with history, but uh, you might be familiar with Canute the Great. Canute the Great. He was Danish king of England, Denmark, and Norway in the early 11th century. He rose to great power and brought peace and prosperity to the Anglo-Saxon Empire. He was a professing Christian and a strong supporter of the church. It is said, and the historian uh, Huntington writes, that there was one day when uh, Canute's royal courtiers uh, were praising him and were flattering him, saying, oh, you're such a great king, Canute. And in response to the flattery that he received uh, by his courtiers, he had them pick up his throne and take it to the shore of the sea. He placed the throne there on the shore of the sea, and in front of the audience, he sat down. And he lifted his hand at the waters, and he's quoted saying this, You are subject to me, as the land on which I am sitting is mine, and no one has resisted my lordship with impunity. I command you, the sea, therefore do not rise on my land, nor presume to wet my clothes or my limbs. But, inevitably, the tide rose. And the tide wet his clothes and disrespectfully covered the king's shins. To which he turned to his courtiers, his audience, and he declared this, Let all the world know that the power of kings is empty and worthless, and there is no king worthy of the name save him by whose will heaven, earth, and sea obey eternal laws. Historian Henry Huntington writes this Therefore, after this event, King Canute never wore the crown. But he placed it on the image of the crucified Lord, an eternal praise of God, the great king. The great Canute recognized something that we will see on full display this morning in our account Behold the king over the storm. Behold the king over the storm. It should be obvious to all of us that we have no power over nature. Not one person in this room or on this earth can stop an avalanche. Not one person in this room or on the earth can stop a hurricane or a tsunami or an earthquake or whatever other storms and natural uh, disasters happen. We have no power over these things. In fact, you know, we cause them. It was the sin of men at the fall, the great fall in Genesis chapter 3, that caused all these groanings, moanings, and pains in the earth. The curse didn't just affect men, but it affected the whole earth. The book of Romans points back to the fall of man and says, see, this is why the earth groans and moans. It's because man has sinned, and sin has produced this curse throughout the world. Therefore, natural disasters, hurricanes, tornadoes, etc. We have no power over these things. We admit we are weak and powerless when it comes to stopping storms. And now listen, lo, behold, there is the King who has power over the storm. It's Jesus Christ. Now, we live in Southern California. So the worst we have to worry about is the occasional you know, storm system that comes through and floods, or the occasional earthquake to which our buildings now are prepared for. We don't have a lot of natural disasters to worry about. But every single one of you in this room, there are storms that you go through in life aren't there? You have difficulties that approach your family, attacks from the world, from people, and attacks by sickness, troubles, circumstances that you have no control over, companies that fail and go bankrupt, sickness, like I said, that touches your family, and even terminal sickness that you have no control over. And there are storms that hit your life and cause you to become fearful and anxious. I don't know what storm you're going through, but even as I say that, you are thinking about storms in your life, troubles, pains that have come upon you. You need to know this, that Jesus Christ is the King over the storm. Every trouble, every pain that touches your life, Jesus is King over it. He has power over it. And you... Christian, follower of Christ, have every reason to trust him through any pain and any trial that you go through. Who is the God over the storm? Behold, it is Jesus Christ, the King, who has power over the storm. That's the point of this whole account, and that is what is on full display for us to see this morning. Look at the first verse, verse 23. It says, and when he, Jesus, got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Now that's a significant statement, especially if you were here last week and we considered those quote unquote followers, disciples, who wouldn't count the cost and follow him. Do you remember who they were? It was the scribe who approached and said, Lord, I'll go go with you wherever you go. And Jesus responded and said, hey, the foxes have holes, the birds have nests, and the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. There's no bed where I'm going. No pillow, no nice comfortable home where you can be treated well and cared for. No, no, no. If you follow me, you're abandoning the comforts in your life. And he couldn't follow. And then you had the second man come up to Jesus and say, Lord, I'll follow you, but let me first go and bury my father. And we suspected that this man didn't just want to delay discipleship, but he was waiting for the estate. He was waiting for an inheritance when his father would pass. And so this man wasn't willing to let go of wealth to follow Jesus. And Luke's account gives us a third man. A third man who says, I will follow you, but let me first go back and say goodbye to my family, those in my household. And we identified the third idol that prevents people from truly surrendering everything to follow Jesus. It's the idol of family. Even a good gift that God gives us, like a family, we, wicked sinners, turn into an idol that prevents us from following Jesus. And so these things prevented these people from following Jesus. But look what happens in verse 23. Jesus gets in the boat. And there are some who do follow. His disciples. That is encouraging. That maybe these men had little faith, but they had the faith enough to follow. Faith enough to follow. And to commit their lives to Jesus Christ. A small faith, but faith enough. And Jesus promises these followers of Him you in this room who follow him, not uh, uh, not the goods and the riches of this life, but a hundredfold blessing in the life to come. And the promises extend to you today, if you would count the cost, leave your idols behind, and get in the boat and follow Jesus. Now look at verse 24. There is an important command given by the author in verse 24. It's in the first two words. Look at it. And behold. 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 This command is repeated throughout this section in Matthew chapter 8 and chapter 9. And this is a command not from Jesus Christ, but from the author, Matthew. As he's telling these stories, he wants you to behold. In other words, he wants you to look at something. That's what behold means, to look at it. See this. Edu, the Greek word. Like I said, this word's repeated throughout this section. Let me just reference these. And behold, a leper came and knelt before him. Chapter 8, verse 2. And behold, there arose a great storm. Our text today, verse 24. And behold, the demons cried out, and behold, the whole herd of demon pigs rushed down the bank and drowned. And behold, the whole city came to Jesus and begged Him to leave. Verses 29-34. to And behold, some people brought to Him a paralytic. Chapter 9, verse 2. And behold, some scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. Verse 3. And behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus. Verse 10. And behold... A ruler came to him and said, My daughter just died. And behold, a woman who had suffered a discharge of blood for twelve years came up and she touched him. Verse 20. And behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. Verse 32. What a crowd of people who came to Jesus. Matthew wants us to see something here. He wants us to see something. It's interesting, every time this word behold is used in this section, some sort of opposing force is coming against Jesus. Did you notice that? Whether it's a a tax collector, an incurable disease, a great storm, a legion of demons, an attack from the scribes. Some force is coming up against Jesus, and there's some trouble Or some problem that he has to fix. And then, in every single instance, Jesus masterfully overcomes that force with great power. It's almost as if Matthew takes us to the boxing ring. He takes us to the boxing ring and he wants us to watch Jesus fight against these enemies whether it's sin, sickness, storms, demon-possessed people, you name it. He wants us to see Jesus beat down the fiercest opponent. And then when each opponent steps into the ring, it's as if Matthew's sitting next to us with the popcorn, tapping our shoulder, going, hey, watch this. Oh, you think, watch this one. You think that this disease is going to stop the great physician? Do you think a storm... Is going to silence a sovereign creator? Do you think demons are going to scare away the serpent crusher? You think that scribes are going to stump the law fulfiller? You think a sinner can run so far past a merciful Savior? Watch this. Watch what's going to happen. Jesus is going to overcome these forces by extraordinary power. Behold, look at him. Just look at him. You know, sometimes in in sermons and in sermon application, you as the listener, you want me to tell you to do something. Give my hands some work to do, give my mouth some words to say. Hey, pastor, give me something to think about. Well, the application for this sermon is simple it's for your eyes. And not your physical eyes, but the spiritual eyes of your heart. It's very simple. All Matthew wants you to do is to look at Him. To behold Jesus Christ in your hearts. To see Him and watch Him work and look with awe and wonder. Christian, walk away from the sermon today with the eyes of your heart set on the Lord Jesus, the King over the storm. There's your sermon application. Write it down. It's the first point in your outline. Behold Christ. Look at Him and don't look away. Fear, anxiety is induced. Listen, the reason you're fearful, the reason you're anxious is because you've taken your eyes off of Christ. You've taken your eyes off the big Christ and set them on a lesser fear. It reminds me of my kids. Um, you know, when I'm teaching them how to swim. And they're so scared, they'll just keep telling me, I'm fearful, I'm fearful, I'm fearful. I tell them, I almost grab them by the head and say, look at me, Dad's holding you. Just look at me. Stop looking down in the water, at the depths. Right now I'm teaching them to, to write." to ride their bikes. And for some reason, we all do this. When you start to ride your bike, you're looking at the ground, at the road. You're watching your feet. And I try to tell them, look up. Look at where you're going. That's why you're turning left or right. See, a lot of the problems in our life, the fears, the anxieties, because our eyes are set in the wrong direction. We're looking at our own problems. We're looking at ourselves. The, the big problem in our minds is bigger than the Lord Jesus And Matthew says, you've got to take your eyes off the problem and fix them on the solution. Look at Christ. Look at Christ. Behold the king over the storm. That's what we need to do today. We want to behold Christ. And we're going to watch Him deal with a great storm. The next point in your outline, verses 24 and 25 Behold a great storm, or the great storm. Now you'll notice that this isn't just any storm. Matthew, the author, says this is a great storm. So great, in fact, that the wind and the waves are crashing into the boat, and the boat's being swamped. It's sinking. Now remember at least four of Jesus' disciples are seasoned fishermen of Galilee. They know this lake, this sea. And if you know about Galilee, it's called the Sea of Galilee. It's more like a big lake. It's a big uh, lake, a big body of water. These men had spent their lives on this sea, but the fact that these men are crying out, to Jesus, saying, we're sinking, we need help, we're desperate. That means this is a pretty big storm. A supernatural storm. Not like the other storms that these fishermen had seen. Now, I think it's hilarious. And I even read this in some of my commentaries prepping for this week. I think it's so funny that preachers and scholars waste so much time and so many words explaining how scientifically a great storm like this could happen on the sea of galilee they will tell you that it's because of the you know the sea of galilee is below sea level and the hills around galilee make the atmosphere in such a way that these clouds and these big storms could actually make waves big enough to crash over these fishermen's boats. I mean, it it can be proven scientifically that a storm this size could be over Galilee as if that's the issue. Let me save you time and words. Who sent the storm? God sent the storm. God could conjure up a storm that will flood the desert, or He can divide a sea. He can take a lake and plant it somewhere else in the geography of the earth, God sent the storm, okay? The same person that sent the great silence in verse 26 is the one who's over controlling and sending the storm in verse 24. This is a supernatural storm, obviously, and God is in control here. This is not an unfortunate turn of events. There's never been a rogue storm in all of human history. This is a providential turn for Christ to display His power. God sent the storm. Think about it this way. The man asleep is upholding all things by the word of His power. The man who's sleeping in the boat is aware divinely That there is a storm taking place. I mean, let's remember who we're supposed to be beholding. Behold Christ. What is He doing in the great storm? But He was asleep. Verse 24. Amazing. Amazing. Jesus is asleep in a great storm. A storm great enough for these fishermen to fear for their lives. He's sleeping. Now, this is evidence of his humanity. The Lord Jesus was fully human. He had to sleep. And in fact, it makes sense. If you look the ministry day before this event, Jesus was busy. He had a long day. He was ministering to people, healing all these diseases, casting out demons. He had a very emotional speech at the shore when he's ready to depart. He had to Turned down three guys that were not willing to count the cost and follow him. And he crashes. He crashes. And it, it makes sense that he is asleep, understandably so. Yet, understand this: sleeping in the great storm is not just a display of his humanity. It's a display of his divine sovereignty. He's comfortable, he's cool. He's not overreacting or responding to what's going around him. Why? Because he's in control of what's going on around him. He was asleep, yet upholding all things by the word of his power. Hebrews 1.3 He was asleep, yet holding all things together. Colossians 1.17 Behold the God-man in the storm. Jesus Christ. Truly God, truly man. In His humanity, He sleeps. In His divinity, He is exercising full control. He's calm, He's comfortable. Absolute trust in not only the will of His Father, but in His own power over the storm. I love what Spurgeon writes. Spurgeon says, His disciples cause Him more trouble than the storm does. The storm doesn't wake him. Who wakes him? His disciples. I can relate, and I'm ready to admit, I cause God more problems than storms do. I do in my own sinfulness and my own unbelief. Look at they wake him up. They went and woke him up, saying, save us, Lord. We are perishing. Isn't that a funny statement? On the one hand, save us, Lord. That displays a little bit of faith. On the other hand, we are perishing. That's a whole lot of fear. The little faith led them to the right person with the right request. Jesus Christ, save us. But the great fear did not recognize His power. The great fear didn't recognize His control. It was not full trust in Christ. It was a little trust in Christ. This is relatable for us, isn't it? In our storms, you know, our theology, what we know about the Bible, tells us to go to Jesus. It tells us the right words to say, but it's often hard to give our whole hearts to Christ. It's often hard to truly trust Him in every storm of life we go through. It's like with one hand we're reaching out, God, help us, but with the other hand we're holding on to a little branch. Like, just in case he can't, I've got this. We do that, don't we? Half-hearted trust. We're doubtful a lot lot of the time. And we're wrong to do that. True trust, true faith is whole. All of life, everything that I am, I'm holding on to you, Jesus Christ. I'm clinging to this life raft. This is all I've got. That's what the disciples should be doing. We're wrong to make our fears bigger than Jesus. We need to behold Christ. He is in control. He's bigger than the storm. So the the disciples are wrong to have a little faith, but a great fear. And Jesus corrects that in the the next sequence of events I'm calling the great silence. So that's point number two. The great silence silence. We have the great storm, now the great silence. Christ silences two parties in this account. He silences two parties. First, he deals with the bigger problem, the disciples. I love this. He first deals with the problem. Spurgeon writes, he spoke to the men first because they're more difficult to deal with. The storm can wait till later. And so Jesus, haven't even getting up yet, right? almost like turning his head on the little bench that he's sleeping on, looks to the disciples and he says this: "Why are you afraid? Why are you afraid?" I mean, imagine the scene. The storm is shaking this boat. Waves are crashing in. No doubt into the stern where Christ sleeps, there's a little water building. He's maybe touched by this water. It is chaos. In the midst of the chaos, the disciples lock eyes with Jesus. He asks them, why are you afraid? Like, like it's, a, it's a reasonable question for Jesus to ask in the midst of this chaos. Why are you afraid? And you know what? Jesus asks you the same question this morning the same question comes off the pages of Scripture and interrogates your fear today. Why are you afraid? And before you say anything, before the disciples can say anything, you need to know there's no good reason to fear. There's no justifiable excuse or response that you can give. There's no thing going on in your life that's bigger than Christ. There's no storm bigger than the one in the boat. Why are you afraid today? Why are you anxious? Fear is unreasonable when you're with Christ. When you're with Him. When God is in the boat, you have no reason to fear. And these disciples should know that by now. Christ has displayed full power And His glorious divinity, even thus far, from His baptism through the test in the wilderness, in His teaching, expressing great authority, authority greater than the scribes. He's done numerous healings and exorcisms. He is divine. He's God. And so when God is in the boat, there's no reason to fear. When God is with you, fear is unwarranted. And then Jesus follows the question with this indictment. He says, Oh, you of little faith. Little faith. By the way, that's the only thing little in this whole story. The only thing little. There's a a great storm. They have great fear. Jesus is a great Savior. Savior. And so he causes this great silence. The only thing little is the faith of the disciples. Small. Small trust. The problem that Jesus addresses is that their fear is greater than their confidence. Their fear is greater than their faith. And that should, be, that should not be so. Because the greater force is in the boat, not outside of it. It should not be so, because for the disciples, in their storm, Christ is with them. And listen to this, in your storm, right now, Christ is with you. He's in your boat, too. If you truly are a follower of him, if you're truly his disciple, he's with you. In fact, he promised it. Do you remember in Matthew 28? And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Christ's presence in your life, Christians, should be a great comfort to you, no matter what storms are hitting your life, your lifeboat. Oh, Christ is with you. Would you just behold him? Would you look at him when things get tough, rough, when your life is shaken? Would you look at him? When God is with you, fear is unwarranted. Look at verse 26. After addressing the disciples' lack of faith, He rose and silenced another force. He rose and He rebuked the winds and the sea. And there was a great calm. We're told in the other Gospel accounts, some of the words that He said, silence, be still. But the gist of it was that it was a rebuke. And look at what happened after Jesus rose and rebuked the winds in the sea. There was a great calm. Can you imagine the rustle and bustle of the boat? The, the winds, the howlings of the winds, the, the, the splattering of the rain, the waves coming in, and then absolute silence. From a great howl to a perfect quiet, from a great tempest to perfect still. It reminds me of just a few verses before where Jesus speaks and the sickness is gone. Where Jesus casts out demons by a word and they leave. The power of this man and his words. The power of Christ's word. He doesn't have to cast a spell. He doesn't have to wave his hands and perform this kind of ritualistic rain dance. Jesus speaks and the storm is silent. That's the kind of power He has. That's the power He has over the storm. And look at what the men say. Verse 27. The men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey Him? Sickness obeyed his command and left the centurion's servant in chapter 8 verse 13. Demons obeyed his command and they were cast out with a word in 8:16. Now the winds and the sea obey him. Sickness bows at his feet. Demons bow at his feet. And now the wind and the waves bow at his feet. And the mountains around Galilee would have bowed too if he commanded them. This king has extraordinary power. Behold, the king over the storm, the king over the silence. Who is this man that nature bows down to him? That's the question that the disciples asked. What sort of man is this? Who is this? This is an extraordinary man. I propose he's the same one. He's the same one who created heavens and earth in Genesis 1.1. He's the same one who separated the waters of atmosphere and earth, gathered the earthly waters together, and he called them, named them seas. Genesis 1.6. It's the same one who flooded the entire earth with that atmospheric water and judged the whole world in Genesis 6. Same one. Same one who parted the waters of the Red Sea in Exodus 24. The one who poured water from the rock that Moses struck in Numbers 16. The one who dried up the waters of the Jordan River in Joshua 4. The one who hurled the storm upon the sea in Jonah. The one who makes the storm be still and the waves of the sea hush in silence. The one who turns rivers into deserts and deserts into the pools of the water, Psalm 107. He is the same one who tells Job in Job 38. I clothe the sea with clouds. I set bars and doors on the ocean. I tell the waves where they crash. By the way, I told them to crash in your boat. And, when, and I tell the waves when they can come no farther on the seashore. I walk the deepest crevices and caverns where no man can dive the same one he is god behold jesus christ he's god do you believe that jesus is more than a good teacher he's more than a miracle worker a david blaine type that can do incredible magic tricks He's better than Alexander the Great and any earthly ruler that has come before Him or after Him. He's the King over kings. He's the King over sickness. He's the King over the storm. Do you believe that Jesus is that God? And have you surrendered your life in faith to Him? He's the only one worthy of it. Only one worthy of absolute trust in the storms of our lives. Behold, Jesus Christ. And Christian, this account should be a great comfort to you. It should convict you of your lack of faith when you doubt. But it should also provide an overwhelming comfort because of the security and the safety you're in when you're with Christ. Life is hard. Difficulties come. Storms will come upon you. But he's in your boat. He's with you. And you have His presence in your life that no matter how hard it gets, you can always call upon Him. He's right there listening. His ears are towards you. And He's given you ultimate salvation. If Christ is for you, who can stand against you? What opposing force could get in the ring and overcome you? Not one when you're in Christ. This should comfort us. Provide us great sense of security in Jesus But if you're not a Christian, you don't have such comfort today. If you're not in Christ, Jesus is not with you in the boat as far as a relational presence. The Bible says that He stands against you. And if you're not in Christ, listen, the greatest storm of your life is not going to be here. The greatest storm you will face is is eternal judgment separated from Christ forever. Because of your sin. Sin earns death. Not just physical, but spiritual. And so without Christ, you'll face storms here. We all do. But the greater storm awaits. When Christ, you stand before God on Judgment Day, He says, depart from me. I never knew you. I was never with you. You don't know me. I don't know you. And He casts you into everlasting darkness, separation from God's favor, and you enter the place where God's wrath is poured out against you for eternity because of your sins. You're a sinner and you need a Savior. And if you don't embrace Christ, the only Savior, then that is your destiny. You're a child of wrath, Ephesians 2 says. And if that's you today, run to Christ. Run to the King over the storm. Trust in Christ wholly. All your heart, all your life, everything you are, embrace Him as the only Savior. The way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through this One. Behold Him. Trust in Him today. Embrace Christ for salvation. The salvation you need from your sins. Because Jesus took care of of the problem. Jesus displayed this incredible authority over nature in his life. But it's amazing that he would submit himself for a moment to to the force of death. And he did that. He submitted himself to the force of death so that he could overcome it. So that he could pay the penalty for our sins and have us made right before God, be the substitutionary sacrifice, but so that He could prove His power over the ultimate force by three days later rising from the dead. And He's victorious over sin and death. He has defeated all powers. And He's coming back to establish full reign and full power on the earth. And He will defeat death once and for all. And that's what we look forward to as Christians. But again, I plead with you, if you don't know Christ, if He's not with you in the boat, turn to Him today. Embrace Him as Lord and Savior. Surrender your life to Him. He is the only salvation, only salvation from sin and death. Behold, Jesus Christ. Look at Him and don't look away. Let me pray. Father, again, I ask just on our behalf that we would behold Christ, that we would set our eyes on Him and never look away. It's so easy for us as like little children to be distracted by our problems, to focus our eyes on the problem, the fear, the storm, and to take our eyes off of Christ. I pray that You'd help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, to remember that He's bigger than our storms, that He's worthy of our trust, He's proven Himself faithful. And that we need to trust Him wholeheartedly. Lord, I ask, just as the disciples ask, we believe, but help our unbelief. Help us to grow in our faith, grow in our trust, our comfort, our joy, our security in Jesus Christ. I pray that for the Christians, the disciples, the followers in this room. But I pray for those who don't know Christ, who haven't turned from their sins, who haven't yet surrendered their idols to follow Him, I pray that they would repent and believe today that You would convict them of their sin, that they would trust wholeheartedly in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, and that they would experience the joy, the eternal satisfaction, the blessing of being with Christ and in Christ. I pray that You would do that today. Do that miracle, Lord. We depend on you for that. It's only something that you can do. In Jesus' name, amen.